All right, well, um, this morning is going to be a little different. It's been a while since I've preached. I mean, I feel like I, I preached at a dinner table every other night, but to you guys, it's been a while. Uh, my name's Tyler Hardy, if you just started visiting. Um, I'm the senior pastor here and have uh, graciously been given a, a needed break over the summer from preaching and teaching and We've had a great team of people uh, jump in here from staff to just members in our church, and it's been really rich. If you missed it, we did a series called Enthralled, and we really, the whole heart behind that is we want you to be enthralled again with this, because it's alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I would, I would encourage you, let this be the filter for all decisions in life. Finances, marriage, job, what to do with COVID, what to do with politics, what to do with race, what to do with grandma, what to do with your neighbors, what to do with your yard or your dog or anything else. Guess what? It's here. It's here. If it's not explicitly lined out, the principle can be applied to any and everything. And if you don't want to read the whole thing today, which I'm not asking you to, if you just want to remember one thing, it's what I just prayed. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. By the way, that's all of you. That includes the whole being. Every single part of you is summed up in that statement. And so when Jesus was asked to sum up everything, because there's a lot in here, he's like, remember this, to love God in that way. And he says the second greatest commandment is like it, though, to love your neighbors yourself. Notice he didn't specify to only love your family, only love people that look like you, only love people that speak your same language, only love neighbor included in that context, not just the guy on my street and I can be enemy with the guy on the other street. Neighbor is all inclusive. Neighbor is every other human being. He even goes so far to say later in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies. Which is just like, wow. Okay, Jesus, I was with you before. Love your enemies? I mean, come on. Can we just level? I mean, that's hard. To love your enemies? But that is the kingdom. That is what he is calling us into is the impossible. Not the comfortable and doable. It is impossible. That's why it requires faith. And faith is what is not seen, which is why we get frustrated when we can't see things, see the future, see that. And it's like, hello, that's called faith. That's kind of the point, right? If you could see it all and outline it all and put it in an equation, there would be no need to trust God because we have it all uh, uh, figured out and detailed out. And there'd be no need to relate to God because it's just on autopilot, right? That's why the walk with God, the Christian faith, is never meant to be on autopilot. And when any of us do feel on autopilot, we need something to shake us up. We actually need something to malfunction. Whoa, right? It's like, so if you feel a little bit on autopilot in life right now, um, I'm going to pray here in a minute that God shakes you up out of autopilot. Okay? You may not like me after this prayer. But I'm about to pray that. You ready? All right. So, Lord Jesus, I'm asking right now that every one of us, everyone watching, everyone streaming, everyone in this room, Lord, Lord, we pray you would get us out of autopilot in Jesus' name. Lord, we are asking for a shaking. We need our hearts to be shaken. We need our minds to be shaken. Lord, we need to know that there is a God and that we need to trust you. We need to get on our knees and we need to grab hold of you and not grab hold of things in this world, but to say, God, you are my God. There is no one else. So Lord, we pray for a shaking to happen in us, in Jesus' name. I don't really care how it comes. I don't care how painful it is because we want to know you. Lord, suffering is part of the kingdom, and those that suffer are able to then endure and are able to latch on to these promises and to your nature and to carry us through the storms of life. So, Lord, we pray for a shaking. Lord, I pray against a, a, a comfortable, 
cruise control, autopilot life. It will be very comfortable in heaven. But on earth, it was never meant to be this way. So, Lord, we pray against that in Jesus' name. We do not pray hardships upon ourselves, but we are praying for a shaking of the mind, of the heart, and our spirit. Whatever you got to do. It can be a dream, Lord. It can be a situation. It can be fasting. It can be, it can be whatever it needs to happen, Lord. We trust you just as we pray for those that are still lost, who do not know Christ, who have rejected the gospel. Lord, I pray for a shaking over them. Whatever it takes to bring them to their knees so they would realize, whoa, God is really it. There is only forgiveness found in him. So I am praying the same prayer for us that we pray for those that are wayward, those that are the prodigal sons and daughters, those that have gone astray. We pray that you would bring them to their knees in such a place where they would encounter you in a fresh way. Say, God, my God, I trust you again. Lord, we pray, would you do it? Let us be a people that are authentic and real and are serious about the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, you know, a uh, couple months ago, my uh, grandma, who we call 90, she passed away at the age of 90 years old. And she had a real battle with some different illnesses in the last decade. Um, but because of COVID and different things, she lived up in, in Oklahoma in, in a in a, uh, in a nursing home, and we weren't able to do a proper memorial service. And, um, you know, I remember it was just my mom and dad, and then uh, my aunt and uncle, they went up there and did this, this, uh, this service that was just very short, but it was, a grave, it was a graveside service. And I remember seeing a picture of it, and then I began testing, texting with my sister, and I was like, is, does this seem okay with you? And she's like, no, I'm so glad you said something. So then we started texting back and forth, and we got on the phone call. We said, hey, you listen, our grandmother just lived 90 years. And I'm not going to allow the diseases of our day to prevent us from actually properly honoring her life. So we got on the phone. We had a big Zoom call. We got the family involved. said, hey, here's what we're doing. We're not asking. We're telling. We are going to do memorial service for 90 and so we figured it out. We did it in Austin a few weeks ago. And you know what I said? I said, because I want my sons and daughters and I want my nieces and nephews to know how rich of a life she lived, to know the history of the Hardy family, to know what they have inherited by someone else paving the way and living her life. I mean, we get to share stories and, uh, you know, I, I, I share some stories. You know, my grandparents, we would go up to Ponca City, Oklahoma every summer when I was younger. And my parents would take us up there and they'd go on a vacation and let us hang out with the grandparents for a week. And I remember every summer, we would always go to McDonald's for breakfast in Ponca City. Now, there was only one McDonald's, okay? We would go to McDonald's and my grandpa, Papa Luther, would have these coupons. He'd always whip out the coupons, you know? And we always got hotcakes. Those are pancakes, by the way. And he would say, all right, we got a thing for hotcakes. We got a hash brown. He just coupon heavy, you know? It's awesome. And then, but before we ever ate, we would go around and they would introduce us to everybody who worked there. They, they literally knew everybody. The guy coming to the tables, the manager, the cashier, everyone. And I was thinking as I was sharing this, that's something I overlooked as a kid. My grandparents, whatever I thought of them, they made sure to build relationships at every socioeconomic level in life. They made sure to make sure that they were connected with people. They, they, they consistently went to garage sales. And if you ever went to their house, man, it was like, it was the all-time greatest garage sale. They just kept going. I mean, I think my grandpa had about 150 blazers, suits. You know, he probably paid $95 total for them. I mean, just unbelievable, you know? But I love sharing these stories with them. We'd always play Monopoly, and my grandma, 90, would always be the wheelbarrow. I mean, just always. It was, you could play Monopoly. She's like, that was hers. You couldn't touch it. And we would play Monopoly for days. It was just the board would be untouched. It would stay there. You'd play, you know? So we were telling stories. Then my dad got up, and he shared stories of, of how, when he was younger, they had to move from San Jose, California, to Greenville, Texas. And in the 60s, that's quite the adjustment. 
I know there's a lot of California people coming now, but it's quite the adjustment, right? This is the heyday of the hippies. Okay, this is, this is beach surfer guys. And he came here and he's wearing these like long flowy pants. And he's like in eighth grade with sandals and this little white linen shirt in Greenville, Texas. Okay, there's a lot of boots, cowboys. I mean, let's just say day one, he got into a scuffle. After day one, my nine, he said, he, my dad came home and said, hey, mom, I cannot go back to school wearing this. I'm gonna get beat up again. So my nine, he went and drove him and bought him whatever he wanted and got him new clothes, right? But I love that story because she was such a, such a mother bear. You know what I'm saying? And I told, and I wanted our kids to hear, hey, your grandma, man, she wasn't perfect, but she was a fighter and she took care of her family. And I want you to see when people came against their family, how she protected them and took care of them. And as we're sharing this history, I was thinking back about this memorial service we just did. And it was beautiful. and It was so encouraging to see all these pictures from her in her life. I was thinking about our history and just thinking, Lord, there's such a rich history. If you're a follower of Jesus. Not only do we have the Bible as this several thousands of years history that unpacks the story of Jesus, it unpacks the Israelites, it unpacks creation, the beginning, the flood, it unpacks what happened uh, with the Egyptian empire, it happened, uh, Babylonian empire, all these different things. It's so fascinating. But then you zoom forward and you get to the New Testament and you get to the book of Acts and it talks about this church called Antioch. And so what I wanted to do today, just in a brief amount of time, is to just show you a little bit of the scripture related to Antioch, but then really take you into our story as Antioch Community Church and this Antioch movement. Because we did a survey about three or four months ago and realized that over 50% of the people in this room have been here less than two years. And so when 50% of your congregation has been here less than two years, that means anyone who was here two years ago, they have no idea who they are. They don't know anything about that. Some of you guys are like, world mandate? What is this, a government conference? What are we doing here? You know? It's like, are we trying to take over the world? But what? No, it's not really that. You just got to come, all right? So uh, that'll be my, like, teaser trailer. If you're curious, you should totally come. You know, some of you guys are like, you know, we'll share about some missionary, and you're like, who's that, you know? I don't even know you guys do that kind of stuff. So we recognize that half of our church has been here a little while, and half of the church is new. But by way of reminder, so that we're all on the same page, I want you to know some of the history, a little bit of the why behind the what before we launch into this fall. Because if you don't know your history, it's very difficult to appreciate the present. Do you know that? If you don't know where you've come from, you tend to take things for granted. Right? You tend to just look like this. It's like if you don't realize what was sacrificed for this nation to be created? Whatever you believe about it, many men and women sacrificed their lives and risked their own livelihoods crossing the Atlantic to come over here to establish this country. Many people fought against the British and had to, from, from, from the whole British monarch to discover this nation and 13 colonies and it moved from there. Was our country perfect? No. Is it perfect now? No. And by the way, there will be no country that's ever perfect until we get to heaven. That heavenly country's it. So until then, it ain't going to happen. We can get better. We can grow. We can make huge efforts to be more reflective of heaven. Heaven will not exist on planet Earth in its entirety. That's why there's heaven and Earth. This, this is not going to happen. This isn't, this isn't happening. It's not happening. Right? There's a new heaven, new Earth, but this ain't it. Okay? So I want to share with you some of our history, all right? I like history. If you can't tell, it's really fun. And I get excited. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. I'm going to pause there. 
a few things we want you to see. So if you ever wondered, why are we called Antioch Community Church? It's because of this. Antioch, I remember we first moved here, and I'd be like setting stuff up, and I'd be on the phone with someone in customer service, and I'd say, yeah, it's, here's my email, it's Tyler at Antioch, and sir, can you spell that? No one ever knew what it was. Sadly, I even met with Christians and people here in the town, and you know, and that's the way it is, and I was like, yeah, we're Antioch. They're like, what are you guys against? I don't understand. I thought church was supposed to be, and I'm like, dude, Antioch, you know, they're like, where's that? It's in the Bible. Really? And I was like, yeah, uh, you know, it's just awkward, you know, do you want to be like, read your Bible, but you know, kind of read your Bible, you know? And so Antioch, right? So you're wondering why are we called Antioch? It's because of this, we're about to read here in just a minute of kind of what that church represented. Now, number one, what I want you to see here is because of the persecution of Stephen. If you remember, a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, preaching the good news. What happened? They stoned him to death. As a result of Stephen's martyrdom and suffering, people spread. Reminder, whatever the enemy intends for evil, God turns for good. In a strange way, Stephen's death caused a ripple effect. And the positive for the gospel to spread and to go to people who had never heard it before. It says there are people from Cyprus and Cyrene who were speaking to the Hellenists and preaching the Lord Jesus. Remember, up to this time, the gospel sharing was to Jews. This was to Greek-speaking people. Didn't really matter where they came from. And actually, when you look at Antioch, there are people from North Africa, people from Greece and Southern Europe. People from the Middle East were all in this place called Antioch because Antioch is a city, was actually the third largest city known in Europe and the Middle East, behind Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. So it was a large economic hub, a lot of travel, people coming and going. Imagine like a New York City, just people are coming in and out all the time. So when the gospel is being shared, people are taking that, heading back to their villages, back to their towns. So the gospel began spreading because of this hub, this place at Antioch that was happening. And it says, the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So the gospel's being shared at Antioch. The reports go back to Jerusalem, who's like the mothership of the church, and they're like, hey, there's something happening at Antioch. And so they send for Barnabas, right? Barnabas was kind of alongside with Paul and really helped him in his missionary journeys. And Barnabas came and it says, when he, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Amen. I love that. Mm-hmm. Guys, when people come to our church, yeah. when they come to your life group, they should see the grace of God. Yeah. Not a bunch of anxious people, stressed out. Not a bunch of fear. Not a bunch of infighting. Not a bunch of hate. Not a bunch of uncertainty, insecurity. They should see the grace of God. On display, in the air. It should be what they smell, what they taste. And it says he was glad. I like that. He was just happy. Man, you guys, you guys got it going on down here. <laughs> and he exhorted them, though, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Faithful to God and yet stay on mission. Stay on mission. Don't give in. Don't give up. Later on in verse 25, it says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Here's the ones you see in this passage. Um, It says, Barnabas went and got Saul, right? Saul becomes Paul, right? So he went and got him, brought him to Antioch, said, hey, you got to see what is happening here. And it says they stayed there for a whole year. Could have been 13 months, 15 months, we don't know, but at least a year. They stayed there and they invested in them. So when people ask, hey, why did you guys create the Antioch Discipleship School? It is based off this, period. Because at Antioch, they said they stayed there for a year. 
I don't know if all the people stayed there for a year or not, but our thinking was, hey, what would it look like if people gave themselves for a year to the studying of the word, to prayer, to teachings, to disciplines of the faith, to being really discipled in a more intense fashion so that then they had as a foundation for the rest of their lives. That's how we do the discipleship school. And it says they were first called Christians. That doesn't mean like, oh, Antioch's better because they're first called Christians. That, that's not the deal. What they were seeing was that these people are actually Christ followers. They looked like Christ. The stories they had heard, they were following Christ. So again, when Barnabas says he saw the grace of God on him, that's what we're believing for, right? Is that people see us and they're like, hey, you remind me of somebody. Who is that? Who is that? Oh, Jesus. Right? Instead of some character on a Netflix show, it's like, who is that? Remind me of starts with a J. It's really nice, kind, but clear and firm and trustworthy, healing. Who is that? Jesus. Right? We want everyone to say, hey, you know who you look like? I know that. Jesus. Right? That's what we want. Christians, to be a Christ follower should be a badge of honor. Even if they tend it for mockery, you say, man, absolutely I look like Christ. Thank you. Looking good. Right? Right? That you look, you smell, you sound like him. It's like, man, if I was right there, I could be cast as Jesus' double in the play. Right? Like, that's what we want. We want to be like Christ. And I love this. It says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Specifically, that is talking about money. They saw the needs and they said, we're going to jump in with our money that we have according to our ability, which means you got a lot, you gave a lot, you got a little, you gave a little, but you jumped in wholeheartedly said, we're going to support our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ elsewhere that are suffering because of this famine and everything else. So we want to support them. I love that. There was a unity across different cities, across even regions. Right? It wasn't just like we're going to take care of our own. It was like, hey, there's a calling to take care of others. So when we talk about missions at Antioch, when we talk about sending people and church planting and giving and all those things, it's in an effort to support the needs of others. And yes, we want to take care of our own, but that's not the end all. That's the desire for us as a church. So I just give you a really brief overview of where Antioch comes from. I could do a whole message breaking it all down. I don't have time for that today, but you can dig into it. So I want to switch gears real quick and talk to you about Antioch, the story of Antioch for us. Now that doesn't go back to like the year, you know, 50 AD. We're going to go back to 1987. All right. So here we go. Just track with me. Jimmy Seibert gave his life at age 17 he went to Baylor University at the time, and he began asking, who is experiencing real transformation? And he started walking around campus saying, hey, how can I be free? How can I be transformed? Well, that summer, he decided to take the book of Matthew, read it line by line, and obey everything it said. Has anyone ever done that? I dare you to try. I never have. As he shares the story, if I heard him tell it, he said, it'll cost you a lot if you go line by line and do exactly what it says. But he was committed. He said, I want to transform my life. I'm not interested in playing games. So that summer, he had a radical transformation of the faith. He would describe it as this. I experienced deep brokenness, true freedom, and a pursuit of holiness in his life. Well, Jimmy, when he walked into Highland Baptist Church with the church he was, uh, started going to at the time, he felt like one of the days he walked in there, the Lord stopped him and spoke to him and said, if you will stay in Waco, you will see me build the church from the foundation up. And he's in college, and he's like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but as any good college student, just write it down. <laughs> Eventually, what he began to realize is that he was talking about the church engaging with bringing about worldwide transformation. So in 1987, as he's still at Highland Baptist Church, he um, got the opportunity to launch Antioch Movement's first discipleship school um, in their basement. And essentially what they did, him and his wife, Laura, they had seven students with them in their first discipleship school. This was the program, 90 minutes of prayer, 90 minutes of worship, uh, I'm sorry, 90 minutes of prayer and worship, 90 minutes in the Bible, 90 minutes on teaching, and then the afternoon was outreach. 
It was five days a week. It was eight to four, something like that. They worked all night shifts to actually make ends meet. It was crazy. They did it for nine months. And then they took a three-month mission trip in the summer. And on that trip, they uh, stopped into Iceland. You went to Iceland? I haven't, but they went to Iceland, Reykjavik, Iceland. They went there, and on one outreach, they were, this is back in, you know, 1988. They were there, and they were doing outreach. This man came up in a wheelchair, and these are a bunch of young college students who are like, we don't know, but we believe in the power of God. We've been praying for it. And this guy's there, and they lay hands on the guy. Next thing you know, he gets up out of his wheelchair, begins running around, and they're just like, whoa, 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 this stuff's real. It's not just like a good read. It's actually present. Well, the next year they started World Mandate. The first World Mandate was hosted in 1988. Obviously, there was as many lights and smoke, but it was real. Maybe the smoke of the presence of God was there. Who knows? But they were there in 1988. And the whole idea was, hey, what if we worship God together? And then we had the idea of, hey, how do we rally people to care about the nations? Whether they're going to the nations, praying for it. We want to stir people up one week in a year to say, hey, we want to put our focus in on the unreached people groups of the earth. Well, in the midst of all that, they took another, uh, they took several other trips. They included Iceland, England, and Amsterdam. And on one of those trips in 1988, they met, they met Joe Ewan. If you don't know Joe, he's a dear friend of ours. He's from Scotland and uh, really in many ways is a, is, a, is a prophetic voice of encouragement for us as the Antioch movement. But then they, they met him there. And in 1988... Um, Jimmy was praying and sorting through things, and within a two-week time frame, three different people from three different places on the planet who don't know each other all text, or didn't text, and text time. They called Jimmy. <laughs> Joe actually says, he was one of them, he called him at like 3 a.m. He's in Scotland, and he's like, Jimmy, I have a word for you. And Jimmy's like, why, why are you calling me, Joe? But you know, when Joe calls you, you pick the phone up, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it was here, Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare them. Lengthen your ropes and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. That Isaiah 54, 2 and 3 passage was a foundational passage that was, that was affirmed by two other people giving him the same passage of Scripture within two weeks saying, this is what, I, this is what you're going to build on. This is the heartbeat of Antioch. This is what's going to happen. Now, at this time, this is 1989, 1988. Okay, Antioch Community Church doesn't exist until 1999. Wow. So we actually started as a missions movement before we actually even had local churches. Yep. Now, they were part of a local church, Highland but they were living it out so that when they got on a plane to go somewhere, it was just, they were just doing the same thing they'd already been doing, right? It, it wasn't like, all right, now it's time to be joyful, right? Like now it's time, where's that Bible? Dust that Bible off, get on the plane, make sure I got my little coffee that's being rattled by the plane and drink it and, and read my Bible, especially next to this guy and make sure he knows what I'm reading, you know, and just leave it here and, you know, go to sleep, you know, whatever. Like, no, it was, it was legitimate. It was real. It was, we're going to live life all the time following Jesus, no matter where he takes us or what we're doing. In 1990, um, a trip went to Europe. And again, they saw healings. This time they saw deaf ears open, deformed body parts, reshape, blindness, dissipate. It's everything they've been reading in the Bible and saying, wow, this is actually happening. And let alone the hundreds of people that heard the gospel and received the gospel message for the first time. He said, one of the young ladies came up to him as they were heading out back to America. And she said, why are you leaving when there's so many of us that are hungry to hear? You know, you can imagine like on the plane, like, oh, Lord. you know, it's like, but you're like, wow, the hunger was there. So there was a commitment to say, we're going to keep sending people as much as we can. In 1991, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the discipleship school uh, uh, outreaches resulted in planting two churches in Russia and in Mongolia at the time. And those churches still exist today. 
And I had the, the, the privilege to go a few years ago to one of the churches in southern Siberia and Russia to go celebrate with them. They were actually hosting their old world mandate there. It was awesome. Uh, but I got, to, I got to go there and got to be with them uh, and just got to minister to the people and see the genuineness of their faith and understanding the reality of what their history has been in Russia and in Mongolia. But man, those people are on fire and they're committed and they're faithful to Jesus. <coughs> In 1998, um, the Antioch Movement planted its first church in the U.S. So here's what's strange, right? There's a discipleship school. People are going through it in the basement at Highland Baptist Church. People are being stirred for the nations, yet they're engaged with the church. They're uh, doing life groups, doing outreach and everything else. And someone comes along and says, hey, let's plant a church in the U.S. Now, by 1998, I think there was already 10 to 15 international church plants already around the world. Okay, but not a church in the U.S. Isn't that crazy? So they planted Antioch in Boston. He researched and said, I want to go to the hardest place in the U.S. And at the time, Boston was one of the least church places in America. And so they went to Boston, planted there in 1998. In 1999, Antioch Community Church was started in Waco. They went through a process with the elders at Highland, worked it through, and eventually got their blessing. And they said, hey, we bless you, release you. They went and planted the church in 1999, predominantly with college students. I remember someone sharing with me a story. They said, you know, at the time it was hard, right? If you're at Highland Baptist Church, people, people coming and they're going to go plant a new church and you, and you take the hit. I think they shared the stats. It was more or less, there was about 400 college students in the college ministry at Highland Baptist Church and all but about five left to go plant a new church. Like, like literally. And so they all left because, you know, Jimmy actually was on staff at that time leading the college ministry. It kind of made sense. And it was a big hit. But then in 2009, as they were celebrating 10 years of the church being planted, they reconnected with Highland, and both their college ministries were around 600 each. Wow. Which meant that even that painful multiplication, there was a reality that God still even blessed it in the end. Yeah. They still reached and grew many students. Isn't that cool? Thank God. In 2001, <clears throat> one month before 9-11, two of our missionaries were arrested by the Taliban secret police in Afghanistan. Antioch church members, friends and family and supporters at the time, they gathered for 53 days to pray and to fast for their release. 53 days in, they were finally released through a miraculous, very long story. And they did 24-hour prayer, by the way, during that entire time. Now, this started before 9-11, before Afghanistan was on the map. And they were released, and it really stirred us as a movement to believe that, hey, even we need to pray for and continue to send people to hard places, even though there's a risk, a big risk involved. I just want to pause, because obviously I was preparing this message on Monday. I had no idea the events that would unfold this week, if you're not aware, with Afghanistan. And the fact that potentially by tonight or tomorrow, that Kabul will be in the hands of the Taliban. That within two weeks' time, a country that... Our nation, amongst others, have invested in economically, education, human rights, to militarily, to infrastructure, to private investment. Within 20 years worth of that, that literally in two weeks' time, it's all taken. I don't begin to know the implications of it all, but just my heart has just been saddened this week, realizing, wow, not only all those pieces I just mentioned, but the reality of the gospel being accessible just got diminished big time. Um, we've had people in and out of that country for over 20 years. And it's hard, but there's been people who've given their lives to Jesus. There's Afghans who have come to Christ, who have been meeting secretly in house church. Um, but that's going to be increasingly difficult. And so I just want to pause for a moment. I just want to pray because I don't even know what we're supposed to pray. Um, but I just think it was quite odd that 20 years later, after two of our people getting released miraculously from prison, 20 years later after 9-11, this whole thing is going back to the way it was in the 90s, potentially. So Lord, we just come before you right now, and we are asking for the mercy of God upon the civilians, the men and women of Afghanistan, Lord. We don't understand everything, Lord. We don't know. We know you are good. We trust you. You are sovereign, Lord. I don't know 
what will happen. But Lord, we are trusting right now that there will be compassion, there will be mercy, that the miraculous of God would be present in this day and age, even amongst the wars, the fighting, the fear, the children being stranded, the men and women fleeing for their lives. Lord, we pray right now in Jesus' name that miracle upon miracles would be cited. We pray for those few believers that are there. You know them by name, Lord, that they'd be bold even in this hour and people's terror. And they would say, there is a hope. There is an everlasting life. There is something beyond this world, beyond Afghanistan. There is a heaven that is real. There's a God who loves you. Lord, I pray the gospel would be so clear. I pray for Afghans all over the world to get on their knees and they would pray to the one true God. Lord, we're asking for this to not be an hour where the devil takes a foothold, but be an hour to where just in the days of Stephen, the persecution happened, but yet the gospel spread. Lord, we pray as the persecution increases, the gospel will be spread, we pray in Jesus' name, to Afghans all over the nation. Lord, we pray for wisdom and discernment, not just for our nation, but for Afghanistan, for the surrounding countries, to know what to do, how to intervene, how to help. Lord, we are asking for a turn. We're asking for a turning. Lord, ultimately, Lord, I'm asking for the salvation of men and women and the Taliban. Lord, I'm praying just in the days of ISIS, there were men and women who shared the gospel with ISIS fighters and they laid down their guns and they received Christ and they destroyed their radios and they went in hiding and they said, we're no longer going to fight for Allah. We're now going to be faithful to God. Lord, we pray for the same thing to happen now. We need a miracle, a miracle in Jesus name. In 2004, following the South Asia tsunami that hit Sri Lanka and southern parts of India, it was one of the world's most devastating natural disasters ever to occur. Antioch created in response something called Acts of Mercy. And it's a crisis relief agency at the time and its formation. Essentially what it looked like was a bunch of people, nurses, doctors, counselors, physicians, others, jumping on planes and getting into Sri Lanka and southern India and, other, and, and, and Indonesia and going to help people practically, serving them, helping them, everything from medical things to counseling to then helping them rebuild their lives. Many villages on the coast were literally wiped out like nothing, laid waste. And we had the opportunity as a movement and many churches pulled together to support what was going on there in the rebuilding efforts and took on one village in uh, in an area there that we helped to uh, uh, build over, I think, 75 to 80 homes, build a school amongst that, then sharing the gospel with our church planters, with people who were there, and people coming to Christ, and people um, uh, having their lives restored. And I remember the time someone, uh, or years later, someone shared with me, they said, you know, uh, some people would, would be frustrated that, you know, Antioch would come in and share the gospel while helping people practically, you know, and people have a big issue with that. Um, and I remember someone's response. He said, well, we can rebuild their house, um, but there's a chance another storm will come and knock it down. And, and, and we, we want to continue to do that to provide housing for them. But we also know if that storm takes their life, there's no rebuild. It's over. We can't not share the gospel while feeding someone. Because that food in six hours will need more. Do you understand? You can't just give water and not the source, right? And so as a movement, I want you to hear me clearly. At Antioch, we're committed to both and. Do we need to make progress on both? Absolutely. Have we, have we done, done better at times with more of the practical side? Yes. Have we done better at times with more of the gospel sharing church? Yes, but we believe it's a two-handed gospel. It's a both and. It's a for your eternity and for the present. We can help you in the present and help you in the life to come. That has to be our aim. Does it make sense? That is who we are. That is what we are about. In 2009, that's a big fast forward, we planted this church. Antioch Bryan College Station, which is super fun. We started a team of six people. I had a pregnant wife with our first child. We didn't really know anybody. I had no ministry background experience. My only sermon I'd given was in our training school for 15 minutes, and it was terrible. <laughs> but you know, the leadership just said, hey, man, we trust you. God equips those he calls. And I was like, man, that verse, it's got a little double meaning for me, you know. <laughs> Pretty painful, that little verse there. Like, I know you are equipping me, but man, you know, just be a little, uh, be a little smoother on-ramp here. 
So we got here in summer. We started uh, doing some trainings and meeting together, but really we launched in the fall, August of 2009. So 12 years ago this month, we're at the Hilton. And some people have asked, why are we at the Hilton? We're at the Hilton because it's the only place that would have us. I went to College Station ISD. Every single school said, nope, you have to be at church for two years before you rent from us. I'm like, that's weird. And then went to Brian ISD. And one principal in a little elementary school in Brian ISD who actually was resigning the next year, I didn't know about till later, was like, hey, you can meet here in a school cafeteria with our tiny chairs. And I was like, oh, man, y'all be tiny church people just, you know, where everyone's having to just, you know. I was like, okay. So we're like, Lord, we need a breakthrough. And God opened up the Hilton. It was amazing. So we're there for three and a half years. We did our first baptisms. I got a picture here. Um, I'll show you a picture now. So this is the old school service, okay? We had to scream. That's me holding my baby because he normally would scream and say, dada, 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 dada. And Ashley would be on the front row and it's like, oh my gosh, just take that kid, you know, and just whatever, right? So that's the way you do it. But that's the Hilton Hotel we rolled back then. Uh, we got a picture of some baptisms, maybe just a couple of, yeah, so this is how we would do it. After the service, we'd say, all right, everybody, to the pool, you know? And if it was hot outside, be the pool. If it was cold, be the hot tub. We had options, you know, to baptize 24-7. And uh, it was so fun getting to baptize people, and it was crazy. And all these people, up, you can't see, but up top in the room, they'd look at after an Aggie football game at Sunday morning, they're like, what is going on down there, you know? So it was a lot of fun. But that was our church. But I want you to hear that... Um, you know, oh, and then one, one more picture. We also, you know, we started life groups. We got one. So that's, I think it's one of our college life. That's the first one. So um, we started two life groups. It was college and then everybody else. We just put everybody else in the other category. Um, and this college life group grew to like 70 people and we were out of room. So then we multiplied and that's kind of how our college ministry started in our living room. But you know, when we, before we moved here, there was a couple that we went through the training school with uh, named Tom and Autumn. And they've actually served with Antioch for years in, uh, in East Asia. And they're actually Aggies as well. And so before we came, they were praying for us. And Autumn shared this, shared this, this, uh, this, this, this uh, dream she had uh, for us. And essentially went like this. She said, there was this, this picture of Tom and I, amongst others, who had been here before you guys. And we were like on our faces, face down, praying. Praying for God to move in this town, praying for God to move in Bryan College Station and believing God to meet internationals, to meet students. Just, we wanted a move of God here. And we only got to see and taste a little bit of that fruit. But we were praying. And then, the, and then the Lord in that picture showed me that as we were praying, we then just sunk into the sidewalk. And it's like they sunk into the sidewalk. And then there was like fresh concrete poured over them. And then in walked us and others. And she said, the word was, is that you guys are getting to walk on our backs. You're getting to walk over us, but we did it joyfully. Like we labored for something so that you have a path forward. I share that with you because when they shared at the time, it was so humbling. Because when we know history, you understand people have actually sacrificed a great deal. I've done a lot before you ever got here. I mean, not to even just remiss on our parents you know, and teachers and coaches and friends and family and those in the military and others who've just made a way for us. The early church, they've made a way for us. So blessed by that, that there are many, I just want to acknowledge that, who have been in this community for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, who've been praying, who've been interceding, who've been believing for God to move. They've seen it in parts and we want more of it. Just a few more pieces here, then we'll wrap it up. In 2010, um, in January, a 7.0 magnitude earthquake hit Haiti. I want to show you a picture of this. Um, and what's strange also is that as I was preparing this on Monday, I didn't know, of course, there'd be an earthquake that would hit Haiti just yesterday. A 7.2 or 7.3 magnitude earthquake hit Haiti. And the death toll will probably be in the tens of thousands like it was before. So we went about eight months after this happened, Acts of Mercy jumped in again, and literally for eight months straight, as far as I remember, there were medical teams, uh, church planning teams, counselors, all of it. We would go in for one week stints and minister to people. In the early days, it was purely just kind of medical crisis, emergency situations with people. You can imagine 
that death toll, with that many people hurting, injured, that many buildings collapsed, there was so much work to do, it was overwhelming. I just want to say it was, it was probably, even eight months after it happened, it was probably the most overwhelming, devastated environment I'd ever seen in my life. I've been to like 15 countries. I've seen some things. It was tragic. But we had the opportunity to go share the gospel with people and to love on them. And within a few days, we were able to start a tiny little house church there. There's another picture. Maybe, I don't know if there is. Did I get another one of Haiti? No, maybe not. Maybe I canceled it. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, that one. So there we were. Um, there's my wife in there and some other folks. There's Lauren holding the baby. And um, that was just a little tent meeting. And if I could only describe to you what happened, but I'll just say this much. The Holy Spirit filled that tent. People were being healed. People were being saved. People were walking by the tent. Because the way they lived, people didn't want to live in buildings anymore because they all collapsed on them. So they all lived in tents, the whole country. Everybody's in tents. Everywhere, tarps, tents. This is how they lived. So we're worshiping, we're sharing the gospel, and it was amazing. And God was moving powerfully in that day, showing us again the hunger in the nations. In 2011, we launched our first discipleship school here at Antioch. We had 12 students, if that was fitting, 12 men. Hey, that's not how we planned it, but that's just the way we roll. So you might see a few familiar faces in there, but that's the original 12 that did it, and uh, they did great. And since then, we've had 270 students do ADS here at Antioch, and we've got 18 more going through this fall, which is super exciting. And uh, just so encouraged by what God's been doing in our discipleship school. And just really quick, I just want to say this. Ash and I did the school, not for ministry. We did it because we just wanted a foundation of Jesus in our lives. We had it, but we wanted more. So I don't know where you are on your journey, but we're trying to make the school more accessible for everybody, no matter what your age. And if you're saying, you know what? I'm willing to go on a nine, 10 month journey to create a deeper foundation and my walk with Christ is going to sustain me the rest of my life. I would encourage you to do it. The reason we had the school is back to that early church in Antioch. It's because we believe in a year's time you can really get so many things put into you as a people. Well, I'm essentially out of time here. So I'm just going to wrap up with a couple other things. Um, in 2016, as a movement, we sent uh, nearly 1,800 people to Europe. Something called Engage the Crisis. And uh, while I was there, we had bases in Brussels, we had bases in Greece, we had bases in, in, uh, in Amsterdam, we had bases all over, the, all over Europe because of the great refugee crisis happening in the Middle East and North Africa. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to go to a place called Calais, France. And they called this the jungle. If you got a picture of it, it's a bunch of tents. What happened was refugees would come. This is over 5,000 refugees lived in these tents on Calais because right across the ocean is England. And we got to go there and minister to people from Eritrea, Sudan, Afghanistan, Iraq, and all sorts of places. I never would have thought I would have met these people. And sharing the gospel with them in their most desperate place. They fleed their homes. They're trying to figure out what to do in life. Hearing their stories was crazy. But every time we just brought it back to Jesus. He, is, he can forgive you. He is the hope. Even if your life's uncertain, he is trustworthy. He is solid. You can trust him. And it was cool to see people come to Christ. Others we got to pray for and minister to. We got to pray over them for healings and see things happen in their lives. But it was a life-transforming journey for me, I think, for so many of our people involved. You know, lastly, I just want to share that in 2019, um, our college ministry does a spring break trip here every year. And um, in 2019, we went to New Orleans. So we've got a church down there, Antioch, New Orleans. And we went there. And who, do you want to go on that trip? Any hands? There we go, people's here. There you go. And I want to end with this as the band comes up because I think, I, I think that it's powerful for you to know. Now, again, this is March of 2019, not March 2020, right? So March 2019, on a Saturday, we had um, all the college students in here were going on the trip. It was like we were doing some main sessions with worship and teaching and prayer before they loaded up on buses and headed out to New Orleans, I think, uh, on Sunday morning. So that morning, uh, my wife was here along with others and, and Mitchell and Beth Wells, who's leading the college ministry at the time, and other folks. And something happened that morning. I think the message was on holiness and purity and something that I like, but either way, God started moving amongst our students. And a microphone is placed up here and people started coming up and repenting for sin. 
repenting, confessing things they had never confessed before. One by one, I'm, I'm at home with the kids and Ashley calls me, she said, you gotta get up here. I was like, what's going on? She said, I can't, just get up here. Okay. So I came up here and it was crazy. I think it went on for maybe four hours straight. I don't know how many, 100, 150 college students, one by one, came up. Hey, I need to confess this. This is something in my life. One after another. And as everyone shared, there's a line that formed just like this, waiting. People shared, people prayed over them, ministered to them. It was crazy. And I share that with you because um, there was something, there's something about when you get the family together and you get to worship God, you get before him and you start opening your heart up again to him. There's things he wants to do to reveal to set you free that sometimes is really hard on your own. I share all this history with you about the early church and our church, this movement, just a snapshot, because I want you to hear something. I want you to hear and see that this is the family you're part of. You may be here for six months. You may leave next week. You may be here for the next 10 years. I don't know. But as long as you're here, this is the family. This is the group of people. This is the church, the congregation you're a part of that cares about the nations and cares about our own and cares about the city. That we're committed to taking steps of action towards things and not just having talking points. And yet we have lots of room to grow. But I want you to hear me say this, like I said at the beginning, all this sums up to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbors yourself. Guys, if we can simply do that just every day, if that's all you remember from today, then God will continue to move in our midst. He'll continue to bless us as a people and we'll continue to get to touch lives that'll change the world. Amen? I want you to stand up here as we close this morning. And here's, here's where I want to end. I know we went a little long, so I apologize for that. But um, just as we go into a song of worship, I just want you just to take a quick moment and just put your hand on your heart. And um, I just want to pray for us. And you can just agree just with this prayer that God would minister to our hearts. So Lord, we thank you this morning and we invite you again into our hearts. We don't want a boring life. We don't want the comfortable life. We want you to light our hearts up again. Oh Lord, light it up like the first time we heard the gospel. Light it up like that day we repented of all that sin and we felt free. Lord, stir our hearts again for that mission trip we went on where we shared the gospel with the person who never heard. Remind us of the stories of those who've been healed from blindness and deafness. Oh, Lord, remind me of my past so I remember that you pulled me out of darkness and into light. Oh, Lord, open my heart up again. Stir me, Lord, I pray. Don't let us be cold. Don't let us be numb. There is brokenness in this world. There is pain. There's even suffering at this moment that we know of in this world right now. But yet, God, you are still good. Your mission is not over. The Great Commission's not been fully accomplished. You've not returned, Jesus, yet. You will one day. But until that day, we want to be faithful and loyal to you, no matter what the cost. So, Lord, open our hearts to begin. Stir us again for the church. Stir us again for your mission and who we are called to be as a people. We pray in Jesus' name.